The challenge is that methane is a great short-term solution. It's not going to be the effective long-term solution. And so this this report in particular highlighted the challenges um, uh, presented by nitrous oxide emissions. And as we think more on the 2050-2100 timescales, finding strategies to reduce, meaningfully reduce nitrous oxide emissions are going to be uh, just as important as those strategies to reduce methane that we're talking about today. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista. Feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Adiseo USA. Producers of SmartMIM and MilkPay.com. SmaxTech. Get insights from inside your cows with SmaxTech for higher herd health and profitability. Bergen Schmidt. Your partner for improving animal performance. Diamond V. Because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. AB Vista helps dairy producers maximize their herd potential with feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function and overall animal health. From young calves to lactating dairy cows, AB Vista is here to combine industry-leading products and optimal feed strategies to increase your ROI. All right, everybody, welcome to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. I'm Gail Carpenter, the State Dairy Extension Specialist at Iowa State University and your host for today. Today, I am joined by Dr. Robin White from Virginia Tech. Uh, Robin is... Uh, now an associate professor at Virginia Tech, we did uh, notice that she hasn't like updated her LinkedIn profile um, for a couple years, I guess. Uh, previous or prior to that, she was a postdoc at the University of Kentucky, um, and it looks like she was at Washington State uh, for bachelor's and doctorate. So anything in there that we're that we're leaving out? I'm sure there's a lot of uh, a lot of holes to fill in there. Um, so what were you? What were you doing? Prior to 2016, when you started at Virginia Tech, yeah. So I, I think it has it correct on there that I did my bachelor's and PhD degrees at Washington State University. Although I was legally a postdoc at the University of Kentucky, I have still never been to the University of Kentucky. Um, so I postdoced for an organization called the National Animal Nutrition Program, which is a national research support project trying to facilitate animal nutrition research and specifically provide support for things like the development of the, well, now NOSOM documents. Um, I transitioned out of that postdoc after about a year to do a self-funded postdoc on a USDA fellowship that was um, housed at Virginia Tech under the guidance of Dr. Mark Hannigan and then transitioned from the dairy science department here to the animal science department uh, to start a faculty position uh, at the winter of 2016, really fall or spring of 2017, um, and have been here ever since. And I suppose it's somewhat ironic as of last 
summer, we're now one big happy family again. Dairy and animal science have joined to be the school of animal sciences. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, seen a that's a trend around the country. It seems like are there any more dairy science departments anymore? I think after UW's joined with their animal science department, there's probably not much. South, does hope South left Dakota for still have one? It used to be us three. Yes, Wisconsin yes, and South Dakota. So they might be the last one standing. I, I, I know they still have the dairy science major, and I believe it's also the dairy science department as well. Yeah, yeah. So, and we still have a dairy science major at Iowa State. Do you guys have a dairy science yeah, major we'll, at Virginia Yeah, we'll Tech? retain the major. Um, and depending on who you talk to, we're not consolidating the um, organizational units of dairy and animal. We've just created a uh, superimposed layer. That is okay. Cool. <laughs> That's a very uh, administrative way to do that sounds like a decision that came down from the college and not necessarily uh from within but indeed we can leave you know i think in practice it works quite well okay all right good yeah we could uh we could leave department politics aside maybe maybe offline exactly (laughs) (laughs) those are fun always um so what uh what are you working on right now i always think of you as like the super smart modeling person um but the nason's done uh, and uh, you've solved everything, right? So so what, what are your big projects that you're working on right now? Yeah, our team has a research program that focuses at the animal-environment interface, and I like to describe that as three levels of work. So we have uh, basic work trying to understand mechanisms governing fermentation, and we're really interested in this concept of nutrient synchrony and how we can do a better job of matching carbohydrate and nitrogen sources, particularly from non-traditional feedstuffs, um, so that we can uh, enhance production and then subsequently absorption of volatile fatty acids out of the rumen. Um, We then have an applied layer to our research program, which focuses on strategies to enhance feed efficiency and uh, environmental impact kind of at the farm level. Um, and we look a lot at modeling and precision technologies as tools to try and move the needle on efficiency, productivity, sustainability objectives. Then at the, the top tier of our um, animal environment interface focuses on um, the broader food system questions. What are the role of livestock in the food system? Um, how does that role uh, inform us about targets and objectives for maintaining the viability of our industries in the long term. I really appreciate uh, appreciate that. I feel like we this is a this is a rant that I go on every once in a while. Um, probably already have on this podcast too. Uh, you know, I think we, a lot of times we get so focused on our niche, right. And the thing that makes us excited. So like, um, I, I love the rumen and everything that happens in the rumen. And it's, I think it's really easy to be like, oh, we've, we fixed the rumen or we've solved the rumen problem or we're, we're really focused on the minutia of whatever it is that we're excited about and the ripple effect on what happens to the rest of the system, I think a lot of times really gets overlooked. So um, do you think that we're, what do you think our low hanging fruit is right now as a dairy industry when it comes to, when it comes to sustainability and emissions? 
Yeah, you know, I think the the dairy industry is doing all kinds of really exciting things all the way from, you know, the net zero pledges at the industry level through the actions of individual companies to try and um, facilitate adoption of impactful emissions reducing technologies on farm. Um, I think some of the really exciting progress that's being made or or an exciting attribute of the progress that's being made rather is that there so far has been a, a focus on ensuring the economic viability of producers as they move toward adoption of practices focused on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, there's really cool examples in California about diversifying income streams through energy capture um, and I think those are the types of stories that are that are going to be pretty successful in the long run. You know, in terms of low-hanging fruit, um, I feel like that's so well hashed at this point. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, looking at things like feed additives, enhancing efficiency, addressing health concerns. You know, um, fair pretty well anything that can support the productivity of the operation is going to help minimize the emissions on a footprint basis. And then the critical step past that is working to make sure that in addition to minimizing footprint, i.e. carbon emissions per kilo milk produced or milk solids, um, that we're also minimizing the total emissions. Um, And that is important at the farm level, um, but it's really an accounting exercise that needs to be maintained at the industry level. So is there anything that you think uh, we're overlooking? Is there anything that you think is not getting enough attention right now? Yeah, you know, there was a really nice report recently from a lot of the folks that are kind of the leaders in the greenhouse gas emissions space that highlighted um, methane is getting a lot of attention. Uh, And that's important, right? Because the short-lived nature of methane means that everything we can do to mitigate methane emissions has a fairly immediate effect on the warming potential uh, of dairy products. And that can be viewed a couple of different ways. But, you know, from an industry standpoint, that means that we get to be a really important part of the solution in the short term of trying to meet 2030 targets um, for limiting uh, the actual warming that's realized. The challenge is that methane is a great short term solution. It's not going to be the effective long term solution. And so this this report in particular highlighted the challenges Um, uh, presented by nitrous oxide emissions. And as we think more on the 2050, 2100 timescales, finding strategies to reduce, meaningfully reduce nitrous oxide emissions are going to be uh, just as important as those strategies to reduce methane that we're talking about today. Yeah, I think think we got a lot more work cut out for us. I don't think it's going to be just a I think, I think everybody's looking for the secret sauce, right? And we want to find the magical product that's going to fix it. And that's, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I think it's something we're going to be picking away at for a long time to come, it sounds yeah, like. Yeah, you know, I think part of the challenge is that we have a, a pretty substantial focus right now as an industry on this net zero concept, which uses the new GWP star, um, so time series informed warming potentials. Um, and warming neutral under that scheme is a great target to be working toward, but it doesn't do anything about the past 80 to 100 years right. of emissions. And at some point, 
we probably are going to get to the place where we need to start thinking about how we attempt to move the needle on what's already been done versus what the future might look like. Right. I mean, we had one of the worst heat waves I can remember this past week here in Iowa um, and in the Midwest. And that's, uh, we're already really hot. (laughs) We're already seeing a lot of the effects and it's having an impact on our producers too, right? And the heat stress on cows and, um, and our, our, our feedstuffs and, um, you know, just don't get as much rain up here as we used to. And it's, uh, yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that we don't talk about a lot that we got to rewind the clock on some of these things too. Well, indeed, that's part of why we talk about um, our program being focused on the animal environment interface. Because in my view, you really can't just look at one of these things. Um, They're so um, inextricably linked that, um, you know, we're going to be able to accomplish a lot through targeted emissions reductions. We're still going to have to adapt animals to a changing climate. And so understanding things like heat stress physiology and how we can feed animals more effectively to handle that stress uh, is an equally important objective. I want to rewind a couple minutes. You you used a term that I haven't heard too often uh, in recent years. It's kind of a more classical term, but rumen synchrony. Um, I remember reading a lot of papers about that when I was working on my master's thesis and it's uh it's a sexy topic again. Do you want to do you want to talk about that a little bit more? Sure. I mean, at heart, I've always been a rumen junkie. Um, you know, there's something everyone has their their element of physiology that they just can't stop thinking about and and for me, VFA have always been um just absolutely fascinating, not not only because of their link with things like uh, the environmental impact and productivity of the animal, but also because we know so little about them. Um, and they require uh, fairly intensive quantitative procedures to really glean useful information. And, and so it fits right into my niche of things that, that really make me tick. Um, Nutrient synchrony, there's a a phenomenal paper title, right? Nutrient synchrony, um, sound in principle, elusive in practice. I think it's something to that effect, right? Um, And I... Gosh, I'm so jealous of people who can come up with good paper names. Not my skill set. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I think that that really says it all, right? In my view, we kind of gave up on this this idea of synchronizing nitrogen and carbohydrate supplies because everything that we tried in practice just didn't quite work out. Um, and so I, I'm quite fascinated with the use and development of precision technologies to try and sense and explore the room and environment. Um, and so we can look at things like carbon dioxide and ammonia in the rumen as a proxy for our carbohydrate and nitrogen sources and, you know, that's a project that that we're working on right now to try and see whether or not we can use that type of information to understand the available carbohydrate nitrogen supplies for uh, microbial function in real time, with the idea being then if we introduce interventions to adjust those supplies, can we um, have a little bit more precise control over um, an attempt at synchronizing those nutrients? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question sometimes when I think too hard about some of this stuff too, especially when I see like some of the stuff that Kristen Reed's doing up in Cornell and looking at like how things fluctuate throughout the day. 
sometimes when I think too hard about this stuff, it makes me wonder if we've been doing science wrong this whole time um, and need to go back and redo a, a bunch of our classical experience and get a better understanding. Because I think that's a, like, you know, you take your sample at a time point and you assume that that's going to, whatever it is, right? Your rumen samples, or your blood samples, your metabolites, your biopsies, you assume that's going to be representative. Um, are we going to, are, is, do you think there's any val? Do you think that's a valid thought or do you think we're still okay that most of our science is probably still good? I, depending on how pessimistic I'm feeling that day, can be convinced of either. Um, <laughs> for the most part, I think that the way that we research and explore the rumen has been given value by its incorporation into systems that link it to elements that we care about. So by measuring VFA concentrations or molar proportions, as an example, um, in conjunction with things like milk production, fat percent, protein percent, etc., we've given value to those metrics. That being said, they are just an indicator, right? They are in no way representative of the mass or flux or quantity of VFA, again, as an example, available to the animal. And, and I'm just going to keep citing Mary Beth's papers here, right? Because she also put out the paper about the challenges with concentration data. Um, so I, I don't, I think it's really easy uh, when you start to dig into the depth of physiology to throw the baby out with bathwater and say, oh my gosh, we've been doing science so wrong. Uh, none of this stuff means what we think it does. And it might not at the mechanism level. That's okay. We still have pretty strong understanding and associations out at the production level. And we don't need to reinvent the wheel with how we interpret those necessarily, as long as we can create a cipher or a translation between a new method at the mechanism level and indicator that we're using to help understand productivity. Well, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, since you are a super smart modeling person um, and more in touch with a lot of the uh, things that are going on in the world of data science and computer science. Uh, one of the topics that you listed as potential for discussion here was artificial intelligence or AI. Um, we think of AI as different things in the dairy industry. Typically um, it's a little bit confusing sometimes uh, for me when I'm reading headlines, but um, what do you see? What do you see coming down the pipeline for us with, with AI? Yeah. You know, my, my favorite AI story right now, I'm sure as we learn more about these tools, it will change. But, you know, as an educator, um, I read an article about the release of ChatGPT. And my first thought was about what am I going to do with my students? Because I use projects and papers as a primary assessment tool. I give my students very, very clear instructions down to the paragraph on what I want them to write. Now they can stick that into an, a generative AI tool like ChatGPT and create a perfect assignment. Um, and so I immediately signed up for an account and I went on there and I put my last year's um, assignment in and lo and behold, it generated a wonderful assignment that would have gotten an excellent grade in my class, right? 
So my first introduction to this was as an adversary. How do I prevent my students from using this evil tool so that I can, I can evaluate them more effectively? Um, and I kid you not, within 12 hours, I found myself sitting at a department banquet and the department head that was sitting next to me was talking about, you know, his career, he's nearing retirement. And he, he was, he was saying, you know, I don't want to date myself here, but I remember my first week as a faculty, we got a memo, you know, because we still used memos at that time. We got a memo from our department head that we would not be using email. That was an unprofessional, oh my inappropriate <laughs> form of communication, and we would have nothing to do with it. And I, I still, I've got goosebumps right now because in that moment, I had this like terrible realization that I was that department head. I'm that guy. <laughs> this tool that probably is going to be the future. And I'm saying, how do I prevent people from using this? I don't, you know, I don't want to go that route. So it, it was a really fun way to open my eyes a little bit to being a, a little bit more receptive of how we might use this productively as opposed to trying to prevent its use. Um, so since then, you know, we've spent a lot of time in our laboratory developing standard operating procedures for our graduate students to figure out how they can use these tools effectively. Um, I think that the generative AI tools that exist right now are fascinating from a modeling perspective. Effectively, all they do is guess what the next word should be. And it's actually, I'm not sure if it's depressing or amazing that humans are so predictable that you can generate incredibly useful text just by guessing what the next word should be. Um, but there are some pluses and minuses to the tools that exist right now, right? They are not particularly good at summarizing the scientific literature, for example. Um, but they really can help students understand um, like how to structure an argument or how to make a paragraph flow more cohesively so, you know, it, in evaluating these tools from a communication standpoint, they really can help smooth out a lot of those challenges that occur um, with communication so that we can focus our time on the thing that really matters, which is the, the content that we have intent to communicate. Um, so, you know, how are these going to be operationalized in the dairy industry? That's a, a fascinating question. I could speculate on all kinds of potential uses. Um, but I think what we have to start with is thinking about that department head that sent out the email about not using e the memo about not using email. Uh, right. <laughs> and now all my memos come through email. So, <laughs> right. You know, approach these things with. Um, the lens that you'd approach any tool, right? A little bit of open-mindedness, a lot of willingness to explore and, you know, be ready for some of it to be garbage and some of it to be pretty useful. I spend a lot of time asking ChatGPT uh, what my tone of my emails is. I feel like that's a very specific problem to women, um, <laughs> women in the professional world, but just checking my tone, making sure my tone comes across the way I want yeah. it to. And, uh, is there a way to nicely say this or could this be more cool? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or when you start on a, 
you know, a description of something that gets really complicated and you realize by the fifth or sixth sentence that it's totally nonsensical, oftentimes you can say, is there a way to say yeah. this better? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what are your your SOPs for using ChatGTP with your students or using AI with your students? Yeah. So right now, you know, what we're focusing on is using them as an editing tool. Um, you know, so the onus of responsibility typically in our lab would be put on the student to develop a first draft. Um, sometimes we do those broken up into individual sections of a, a paper or write up. Sometimes it's the whole thing all together. Um, but usually what happens is they send me that first draft and I sit on it for about a month working through it meticulously trying to get the communication appropriate for a scientific audience, trying to make numerous comments, right? And, and I'm um, maybe a little excessive about refusing to track change work because I want somebody you know, a student to go through and make the changes themselves as a learning opportunity. Um, if I rewrite the paper for them, they don't learn anything. Um, so what I'm finding is that I can replace that first step in the process by having them do that process with ChatGPT instead of me. And it's much more effective, or at least um, in our initial conversations about, you know, how they feel about writing progress and things. It's much more effective because it's done in real time rather than waiting for a month for me to send back a, you know, marked up version of something when they've kind of forgotten about what they wrote and what they were thinking at the time. They can do that process in real time, kind of paragraph by par paragraph. Um, so we have an anatomy of different sections of a paper, what's expected, what those different paragraphs should look like. Um, and our SOP is effectively generate your first draft using that anatomy. Um, we, we do some training, um, so you can, you can use an AI tool to learn about styles. So you can train it on some previous papers in the subject area and say, can you learn the style of writing in these papers? And that can help clean up and, and improve the scientific language, um, that's used. And then have the students go through paragraph by paragraph and ask for suggestions about how they might, um, have that paragraph flow a little bit better, what else they might put into there, you know, if there's anything that's confusing. And all of those questions can be done, you know, in, in five minutes with um, an AI tool, as opposed to, again, really delaying the process with um, waiting for comments to come back. So after they generate a section um, we would have them put that section, the full section in and ask for any suggestions about what else should be included. So maybe you write up your methods and materials, paragraph by paragraph, you get it all structured the way that you want it to. You put the full methods and materials in and ask the question, what else should go in here? Um, and that helps catch, um, I'm an editor for, for Dairy Science, right? And we have these little check sheets that you have to do um, before you submit a paper. And it's interesting to me that a lot of the, the same types of things get brought up in that question, like what else should I include in this, as are on those check sheets. So it is really, to us, pretty helpful to remember like, oh yeah, we should have put something about the sample size and the experimental units because we told you how many cows there are, but maybe you need a little bit. Very cool. Does it look kind of the same when you use it with your undergrad classes or do you, do you modify Whoa. that? We're doing an experiment with the undergrads. I mean, I don't I can call it that because I don't have IRB approval. So um, 
were <laughs> it's okay it's not like we post this on the internet <laughs> yeah, yeah. um there is no data being collected <laughs> okay there we go perfect um with my undergrads what i'm asking them to do is actually use that to develop their lecture notes um oh yeah because i for better or worse i am a I am a no exams person. I don't think that our exam structures are really effective at assessing learning. I think they're really good at sorting out the students that have excellent stress management skills and those that do not. And that's an important thing to know, but it's also not necessarily what their grade in animal nutrition and feeding is supposed to be based on. Um, So I have them do, or this semester we're trying, um, having them do weekly lecture notes generated through chat GPT and then to write a summary paragraph comparing what they got from lecture versus what chat GPT summarized from lecture. So this is my attempt at still making them think <laughs> while enabling them to use a tool that really I think can dramatically improve their time use efficiency. Nice. I'll be very curious. So is this your first semester trying that out? Yes. Um, And I've told them that we'll assess like mid semester. And if they hate it, we'll do something else. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, I'd be really curious to hear how that goes for you. That sounds like that. Because that's another thing that that I've noticed with undergrads. And I see it myself sometimes too, is that you don't understand how to take notes, right? Yeah. Note writing is not just copying down what's on the PowerPoint slide. Um, And getting that across to students is really a challenge because I think we've just, our pedagogy now has just moved to, we do PowerPoint slides. And I think that there's been some, some downstream effects of that in terms of critical thinking and, and how people prepare and, and learning. And, and, and that's what, when we talk about exams, not being a good assessment of learning, I think a lot of that comes down to, we don't actually teach students how to learn very well. I would absolutely agree. I think you know, from our university, state, and national guidance right now, there's so much focus on flexible pathways for students to get through university. And at least for us, that means that we're, um, our students are really wanting to have courses offered in whatever modality they want to take it in that day. And there are very few things that you can do in person, online synchronously and offline (laughs) that provide an equitable experience for those students. And so we do kind of get pigeonholed into the lecture, the PowerPoint and the slides and the recording, because it's one way that you ensure that everybody gets the same experience. But what they do with that information after it's been delivered to them, I think is where we have opportunity to try and push back toward a little bit more, um, problem solving, thinking, and a little, a lot less memorizing. Well, and I keep thinking about that department head without, with no email, Um, (laughs) your department head with the memo. I think that, I think it's really easy for us as educators to miss what our own blind spots are. Right. And, you know, trying to get away from, I, I talk to people who are trying to get away from PowerPoint slides and it's so easy just to kind of like go back to it. Right. Cause that's how we learned and that's how, that's how people have been doing it. And that's how, you know, our education system was kind of based around it. Right. And it's and standardized testing and exams and it's hard to break a lot of those habits. Indeed. But, but I think, you know, to transition into one of those other topics I threw at you, Um, I think it's one of our major challenges with science literacy in our society that we're not 
engaging people to think about information. We're just in- encouraging them to consume that information without any sort of guardrails. Um, I think that's very true. Yeah. I think the university is the right place to try and make that change. And I think that it's part of our social responsibility to do so. And, you know, to try and bring some relevance to the dairy industry. Just look at the amount of misinformation out there about dairy food products, environmental impact of dairy production. Um, It's really critical that we help people look past headlines and try and critically evaluate information so that as a society, we can have more intelligent conversations about, um, you know, that reality oftentimes is somewhere in the middle and that's okay. How do we, how do we fix that? I, I mean, again, as a, as an educator, I'm going to say that that's our purview and our responsibility, how we address the large portion of the population that's no longer involved in the educational process, I think is a, a bigger challenge. Um, and that's one that's, that's going to require a little bit of maybe meeting people where they are. Um, and I think, a a lot more data collection to understand the extent to which all sorts of factors ranging from the amount of time that people have available to consume information, the mechanisms through which they consume it, um, and the way the information is presented in some of those mechanisms uh, becomes important consideration. I know for a long time, um, in doing interviews and things about environmental impact, um, I almost just stopped doing them because at the end of every single one, I was asked by a, you know, a reporter to give them the 15 second take home message. And in reality, science is not going to be diminished into a 15-second take-home message. Reality is complicated. And by ignoring that complexity, we do ourselves absolutely no favors. Um, this is this is where, you know, I'm not going to call it the demise of Twitter, but in some ways, the shift away from that platform to me is really exciting because it. I, I credit Twitter a lot with the idea with the push to reduce things down into the soundbite. I don't know how many characters a tweet was, but in many ways, right. That that's that push is to make things as succinct as possible. And I agree with trying to um, hone a message or to make it clear, but a lot of messages are not going to be adequately communicated in a short period of time. So, um, you know, the growth of things like podcasts where you have an extended period of time to have a conversation and people invest in that extended conversation, I think is a really exciting shift and making better use of those um, and ensuring their accessibility to the public is pretty important. And then people are going to listen to the the podcast at 1.5 X speed though. <laughs> well, that's okay. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't mind that so much. At least they're getting the, the extent of the content. We're just, yeah, we're in, a, we're in a world where everything's demanding our attention at the same time, right? I read this book a couple times now, Think Again by Adam Grant. Um, it's one that I recommend all the time. It's such a good one. But one of the studies he talks about in here is actually talking about um, talking about global warming and climate change and 
how to have discussion around this. And they've actually, he says, multiple experiments have shown that when experts express doubt, they become more persuasive. Um, and I think that ties back into, you know, what you were talking about with, with if we show that the discussion is complicated, I think that actually enhances trust versus just being like, nope, this is how it is. Don't even don't even think about it. Just this is how it is. And don't ask questions and shutting down conversation versus inviting people to the conversation and having some of that, you know, back and forth about, you know, this is, it could be this, but it could be this, but it also could be this. It really depends. That's like the traditional extension answer that we always joke about, right? It depends. You can't answer. There's one, no, you know, one size fits all for everything. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, that's one of the things that he talks about here is is just having um, headlines that headlines in which writers have hinted at the complexity of solutions. Um, so a couple of the examples he gives is I work in the environmental movement. I don't care if you recycle. Um, can planting a trillion trees stop climate change? Science says it's a lot more complicated. And I think just kind of inviting people to that complexity can do a lot when it comes to trust, which is very anti-intuitive to what we, to how we've been doing it. Right. Like we're scientists, we have PhDs. We've been studying this a long time. Just stop asking questions. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of my, my like root assumptions about the world and to some extent it's founded in sociology and, and the relevant data, but to some extent it's just housed in my own experience is that so much of this problem is driven by accessibility, right? Over time, our accessibility to diverse information has expanded in a manner that I don't think anyone can really conceptualize. You know, even as a kid, right, if I wanted specific news on a topic like a hobby, I would subscribe to a magazine focused on that, you know, and, and perhaps once a month would sit down and read through that, right? Um, now I can access all forms of, of media um, either through an app that integrates those or um, a search on my, my phone or my computer. And what that, in, I believe, does in practice is it makes us, it gives us a false sense of confidence around our understanding of concepts because our level of depth diminishes dramatically with exposure, right? I may have read 70 headlines this morning while I was drinking my coffee, but I didn't read 70 articles. And so implicitly, those headlines do somewhat stick with me and I make my, up a, my, my mind and drive decisions based on my assumptions about what the content of those articles was based on their headline. I might dig into a few and have a much better understanding of the complexity, but just the way that we present information and the um, the availability of it for consumption gives people a false sense of security. And when that false sense of security is definitive, X is happening or Y will reduce whatever response we care about, um, right? That makes up my mind in a way that's different than if there's a question, you know, experts say it's more complicated. Oh, well, there's a question there. I guess maybe I should, I should think more about that. I think the newsification 
of science is complicated as well, right? It's not good or bad, but, um, you know, who we call an expert, right? Just because, you know, we want to have somebody showing the other side of an issue. Well, maybe, maybe the other side of the issue, there's not really any experts on, you know, experts disagree doesn't necessarily mean like there's somebody over here and somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? It probably means that there's a lot more nuance somewhere in between those two, right? And, um, but if we can create controversy, there's a middle ground there, right? Between, um, inviting people to complexity and creating controversy just so that we can get more clicks or, or whatever it is. So it's fun. <laughs> it's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Xzealot, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Our Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Our Yeast 40 is a natural biotechnology from ICC designed to boost the health and productivity of animals under challenging production systems. Our Yeast 40 performance is supported by an unique processing technology that results in a pure product containing high levels of beta-glucans, MOS, and yeast metabolites. These factors, combined, promote the ruminal and intestinal modulation, helping the animals to reach their full potential. Well, I'm gonna. Uh, anything else we need to talk about before we kind of before we transition to our to our top three questions or our three questions we ask everybody? I think you've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we we talked about a lot. This has been really fun. All right, so the first question we ask all of our guests is, "What is your favorite dairy related book or resource?" So, you know, if we're talking about resource as a um, literary resource. Uh, as a um, as a member of the JDS family, I'm going to say the Journal of Dairy Science is my favorite dairy resource. Um, but you know, if we if we look a little bit more from a creative lens, there, I would say like this this I triplicate imagination, innovation, and ingenuity are my favorite dairy resources. Um, which might be a, a cheesy way to answer that question, but always appreciated we have people you know youtube channels podcasts all sorts of different types of uh resources get mentioned in here so what is your favorite uh, non-dairy related book or resource doesn't have to be literary yeah you know in terms of um resources i would say uh creativity and play um i know that's kind of a a silly thing but there's so much literature out there about the importance of things like a playful mentality in um, keeping the mind open and exploring new explanations or possibilities. And so as a scientist, I really try to hold on to that um, kind of playful mentality to see if I can make connections that I wouldn't otherwise. So to me, that's a critical resource. Well, and that's, I think, one of the other advantages that we don't talk about a lot with the AI stuff that we were just discussing is you can offload a bunch of, you know, 
banal tasks onto it and they no longer take up your time or your brain space. And I think it frees up more time and brain bandwidth just for some of that, some of that creativity play, um, which I think you're absolutely right. I think it's something that we're definitely in also culture in particular. I think it's something that gets missed out on quite a bit. Yep. And the bandwidth, I mean, that's the root of all problems, right? I think we just don't have enough. So Yep. <laughs> anything that can can free some up is a good thing. Anything I can offload onto something else. Yep. Uh, and then our last question is, what do you think sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not successful? Yeah, you know, I think this is a really hard question because I think success has a lot of different definitions. Um, and so from one lens, I think it would be pretty obvious to say that, you know, those operations that have um, really good financial resource management and excellent um, kind of risk management are going to be those that are successful. But I think that from my experience, the, the humans in the dairy industry are so much more than the bottom line of a dairy. And so um, the ability to articulate goals and to make meaningful progress toward those goals, regardless of what they are, you know, I think that that's, in my view, what makes a successful dairy professional. All right. Well, Robin, it's been a great discussion with you today. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and had some really interesting, interesting discussions, I think. Is there anywhere that people can go to find uh, more information about you and, and find out more about what you're working on? Yeah, the easiest way to get in touch with me is via my email, which is rrwhite at vt.edu. That's like Robin R. White at Virginia Tech. All right, perfect. We look forward to keeping track on some of the stuff that you're working on. Thanks for joining us today. 